Hello everyone, good morning, and good afternoon, and welcome back to the History se Special section of the Adventure Geeks podcast. I'm Ian Sullivan, and he's my brother Austin. Hey everyone. Hey guys, uh, yeah, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've done our Battle of Antietam, so I got a, a, few, a bunch of plays, which we, which we appreciate that, thank you very much. I will get the the compliment the commentary Facebook post out there soon. It's just it's been kind of a, a hellish last couple of weeks between work and home. Uh, I'm sure everyone by now is, is feeling the pinch and the um, uh, issues of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think it's affecting all of us. Uh, I don't know. It's, we're going through a very interesting time right now, is to sit, to put it mildly. So uh, hopefully everyone's doing okay with that. And um, hang in there. I, I know, I, I hear it every day, like, we're in this together, but um, I just want to say, like, you know, hang in there, guys. Like, we will get through this eventually. I know it's a pain in the ass. Oh, you got any kind of words for the people, for the folks? No, nah, you pretty much said everything. Thank you. Okay, guys, so, uh, we're going to, our last podcast was on the Civil War. We're going to go away from that for a little bit, jump into... A couple of events that occurred, what is it, 70 years in the, 70 years in the future, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so, 50 years in the future. Uh, this, is, this is kind of a special episode for us, too, because uh, both of us grew up on history, reading about um, Lost Liners and all that. I think everybody, when they first, like, heard the story of the Titanic, everybody got interested in the ship and the, the romantic the romantic myths behind it and all that. So, uh, we're not going to talk about the Titanic. Just, 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 that was just our... Um, uh, our brief, like our introduction into into history, so we're actually going to talk about uh, two other famous ship sinkings that both both of us personally know a lot have a lot of knowledge about, and hopefully it it leaves you guys a, a good lasting impression and maybe you know some interesting facts about that. So I'll start off with the ship I will talk about later, but we're gonna go chronologically. So. The ship I want to talk about, the famous ship shipwreck, is the RMS Lusitania, which was a British passenger liner that was torpedoed on May 7th, 1915. And coincidentally, the anniversary for the sinking was just about a week or two ago. So I figured like that, that should be a special episode that we, we should get out there. And Austin is going to talk a lot about the Empress of Ireland, a ship from the... A British... A Canadian ship. A Canadian ship. That was struck in a collision in what May May, May what yeah about May 29th, nineteen fourteen in the Saint Lawrence yeah right off of a uh, Ramouski that it's in the Quebec province am I right it is yeah it's just outside of Ramouski and just to throw that out there we had planned a trail to Ramouski this May for the anniversary of the sinking the anniversary there's a memorial there there's a museum want to check it out but unfortunately the pandemic put the kibosh on that so we're stuck here in upstate Vermont. Yeah, so we're just going to uh, unfortunately have to talk about talk about it as our remembrance, which I think is I think it just works almost as well. Would have been nice to have gotten out of the states for a couple for a couple of days. It would have been, but here we are. Here we are, unfortunately. All right, now, so why don't we jump into the Empress first? Go chronologically. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the ship and the uh, the whole. Just a little bit briefly about the whole idea with like shipping and passenger liners back then. Well, like, was this like the main? This is the main way to travel, correct? Pretty much. Now, aircraft have not been invented yet to the point where they can travel across the uh, ocean. 
This is way before the dawn of like the 747s, the Boeings, the Airbuses, like. And this is before the event of the cruise ships from Carnival Line, Disney Line. Wherever I guess uh, dysentery it gets diarrhea because of the bad food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even before the whole coronavirus thing came out, like I was running a lot of with the cruise ships, like power failures, if people getting sick, like uh, yeah, not my cup of tea. Oh yeah, that, that's definitely my, how I was my vacation, shitting on the toilet <laughs> for two weeks. But um, ocean liners back then, they were the primary way of getting folks from across the uh, Atlantic, across the oceans. <laughs> Now, the Atlantic crossings were very profitable for the issue of immigration, both from immigrants coming from the European countries to the United States or to Canada, and vice versa. Folks, you know, like, they work for a bit, they make their fortunes, they head back to the home country, or like the work dries up in the States, and they move back to the European countries. Like, so it goes back and forth. It's not just migration from Europe to America. It's also from America to Europe. So it's very profitable. And these ocean liners, these uh, companies like White Star Line, Cunard, like the money making is in steerage, is in like the immigration movement. Yeah, I think people get way too focused on like first class and all the rich opulence and all that. Like back then, as is today, I'm sure we all, people go gaga when they see celebrities or rich people. Pretty much. I don't know why. If you, if, if somebody could explain that to me, that, that'd be great. Because they have the life, they have the money, they have the fame, and they have the wealth. Uh, too much spotlight for me. I'd rather, I'd rather uh, be a recluse. And get paid. Get paid for it, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so where the Empress of Ireland stands, she is a ship owned by the Canadian Pacific Railway. A lot of times the folks take travel on the Canadian railways. They go to either Montreal or Quebec, and that's where the ship would disembark, leave, mm-hmm. cross out of the St. Lawrence, and head towards Liverpool in England. Now, it's the Empress is not as big as, let's say, Titanic. I believe Titanic was around 40,000 tons. About 852 feet, give or take. Pretty much. Empress, much smaller, maybe not even 15,000 tons. I think, like, maybe 600 feet at most. Probably about 550. Facebook post, I'll, I'll put a, full, a couple of photos of the Empress just to compare and contrast. Yeah, so, like, Titanic's, like, these massive four funnels, the four smokestacks. Well, technically, three work, and one was a dummy. The Empress had two smokestacks, so... You can see the size. Um, not as luxurious as the Titanic. Like they didn't like go all out. There's no grand staircase. Really, really no grand staircase. No, no, like the, the fancy promenade. But like for the ship of its size and its time, the Empress does have luxury. Like the first class, second class, even third class mm-hmm. have pretty good accommodations. Like a lot of the immigrants that travel from Europe to America, like many of them. They come from really destitute areas, and many of them don't have even like running water or lights in their uh, in their homes. Mm-hmm. Like the ships have them. I mean, like these ships, the money money making was in third class and steerage. It's, so it's about bodies. Like you can, you can get a lot of yes, a lot of people. So while it's not going, they're not going to dick out like to the nines for third class. Like a lot of what these passengers will have on the ship is a lot better than what they have uh, back at home. It's kind of like making the crossing a lot more bearable and to encourage folks to travel on these ships. And this comes a long way from the age of sail, where uh, it takes, what, four months to... A couple of months, bad food, scurvy. And the greater pretensity of getting lost in a storm and dying. That's never fun. No. So the Empress was built in 1906, and for about eight years she has done the crossings, and I believe has made about 90 of them, like uh, round trips. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very popular in Canada... She's very well built. The ship can go about 18 knots maximum with uh, two screws. 
So she won't have the speed like the Cunarders or the White Star Line ship. She's not going to win like fastest ship on the ship on the on the Atlantic. No, she won't win the Blue Ribbon, which is kind of like the, the the award for the ship that goes the fastest across the Atlantic. Wonder if they got like awards for that for like fastest airplane, for, like in commercial flight. Uh, that's probably t- t- another discussion. But the Empress, you no, know, she's kind of a, a workhorse. She um, does her job well. Is fairly seaworthy, very safe uh, up to that time. So there are wartake compartments, there are wartake doors, although, unlike the Titanic's case, those doors cannot be closed from the bridge with a flip of a switch. Oh, okay. They have to be closed by hand at, at the source. But it's still wartake compartments. Now, after the Titanic disaster, mm-hmm. the whole issue of like lack of lifeboats, you know, Half the, most folks died in the Titanic because there's no lifeboat space for them. But I think we've, we've all, I think we've all seen James Cameron's 1997 blockbuster at one point in our lives. Yes, yes, we have. So after the sinking of the Titanic, like the Empress was given more lifeboats, so she has more than enough for everyone on board. Do, do you know if they had like safety drills back then? I know nowadays, cru- if you go on a cruise ship, they're required to do performing a few safety 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 drills. So everyone's familiarized. I believe once a week. I don't know this time. It was just, that's just for the crew for the passengers. Okay. So like for this sinking. If there was one scheduled, they never had one because they're on the ship for like 10 hours. Okay. So the story of the Empress is she's docked in Quebec, and the passengers load on board. And not a full house, but there's well over 1,400 people on board. Uh, most are in steerage, second class and first class, about 400 or so crew. A good chunk of the passengers is about 150 members of the Salvation Army, and they are on their way to a conference in London. Now, huh. the ship does depart in the evening of May 28th, and they're going to spend about two days going up the St. Lawrence River until they get out to the Atlantic. We've been over the St. Lawrence in Quebec. It's I'm trying to picture a ship that size docking in, in like the the, port, the lower town city of Quebec. Well, probably the lower city. I I can't remember the, the actual berth, but there's berth in there for, okay. in Montreal and for okay. Quebec. So they depart It's um, in the evening of May, May 28th. And, you know, folks have their dinners, they get settled in, you know, it's looking to be a great crossing. They've got a good captain on board, a good crew. The captain's name is Henry Kendall. I believe he's part of the Royal Navy Reserve. A lot of sailors were part of the Royal Navy Reserve. Uh, just pro- I should clarify real quick for people who don't know a lot about, you know, Canadian history or whatever, but at the time, Canada was part of the British Empire, so... Actually, I think, I think that explains it explains it of itself. I don't have to go too deep into that. <laughs> uh, pretty much. So, Kendall's has an interesting story. A couple of years prior before this incident, he is captain of a ship called the Montross. And on one of these crossings from like England to the United States, he gets word on his telegraph that there might be a killer on, on the ship. Hmm. The guy's name was uh, Dr. Crippen. 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 Now, maybe big news back then, um, kind of today, all oh, like the, the crime shows, like it's a typical plot. For what I understand, Crippen killed his wife and hit her by in the basement and absconded with his uh, mistress on the mantra on disguise. You, you told me that. You said this doctor had disguised his mistress as his, his like teenage daughter or something. Like a daughter or a son, but no, like the Warren flags are popping up because they're acting way too like lovey-dovey to be like a family. So, uh, like, Kendall's told, like, yeah, keep the ship busy, like, slow the ship down. I, I got so many jokes about that, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. So, like, the Montrose slows down, and an inspector from, I think, uh, Scotland Yard, or, like, one of the police station, one of the police forces in mm-hmm. England, they hop on a faster steamship and intercept the Montrose and arrest the doctor. 
Damn. That it was like well, the first time like the telegraph wireless was used to uh, criminal justice. Alert, alert, kill her on the loose. <laughs> yeah, I guess like a bolo of uh, 1910 or 1911. Damn, man, that, could, that would have been a great like murder, mis- murder mystery. I kind of want to see the look on that doctor's face when the inspector goes, freeze! Yeah, he probably pulled out William H. Macy at the end of uh, Fargo was trying to skip out the porthole. <laughs> Sir, open the door. Just a minute. Ah, no. <laughs> probably. So anyway, he's on the bridge of the Empress. And it's late at night. You know, most of the passengers have gone to sleep. The crew's alert because that's their mm-hmm. job. they got to be alert. You know, mm-hmm. they're on duty. And they approach Ramuski. There's a place called Father Point mm-hmm. where they drop off their pilot. Now, the pilot is usually like a, a helmsman or... His job is to navigate the waterways that maybe like the, the typical crew doesn't know, like the back of their hand, but the pilot does. A lot of these pilots are locals. I mean, if if you know any, if you know a lot about ships or just don't know anything, usually like when they enter, when a ship enters a harbor or a port, you know, the, you got sandbars, you got obstacles that you're not going to know about, like Austin said. And usually the pilots, usually a local, a, lo, a local man or person that knows the area, so they'll guide the ship in. Pretty much. Yeah, like, the St. Lawrence is not like the Connecticut River going through Hartford. It's bigger or wider. And it's a lot... very wide. I believe it's maybe 30 miles wide. It's a lot more treacherous, especially at the mouth of uh, going into the Atlantic. Yes, yeah, so they're at the mouth of St. Lawrence. It's pretty wide. It's surely before 2 o'clock. The Embers drops off their pilot. Mm-hmm. They're steaming upriver, outbound towards Liverpool. When another ship enters the view about 8 miles distant, coming inbound, coming towards into the river... Mm-hmm. And this is a Norwegian ship, the Collier, called the Storstad. And I believe they were picking up their pilot, which is at Father Point as well. What's a Collier, Arches, for the, fo- for the folks at home? Basically a ship that carries coal. Uh, you know, back in 1910, 1914, like... Coal was big. Coal was big. Coal, coal was like the oil of its day. Well, like, it's funny, because in a few years, oil is going to be uh, a big thing. Yeah, but until that happens, most of the ships are powered by coal, uh, coal-fired ships. Well, I'm sorry, oil was already a big thing, just, yeah, like... It, it got was, bigger. It got bigger, yeah. Sorry, I, I got my um, economics mixed up a little bit. I, I need to rewatch uh, There Will Be Blood with uh, Daniel D. Lewis. So, what happens after this, both ships are signing each other, and both ships are fairly confident that they will pass by, I believe it was red light to red light. Initially, like, port, like uh, on the ships, on the port side, left-hand side, they have a red light that says, hey, this is the port side of the ship. Mm-hmm. On the starboard or right-hand side, there's the green light. It means it's the starboard side of the ship. Anybody who takes a boating class will probably have some knowledge of that. Like, you need to know your starboard right, port from left. You need to know which side of the lights are on. You, you, you need to know some navigation and safety skills. You do. So, this part gets a little tricky. Because after the incident, like, there's going to be two different stories. From the Empress's point of view, they spot the, the ship, the Storstad. And they believe they're going to clear well to the side of it. But then a fog bank rolls into the St. Lawrence and kind of covers both ships in fog. Now, according to, according to Kendall, the Empress does go a bit to the port mm-hmm. to, like, kind of cross, for like the fog hits, cross acro- goes across the Storstad's bow, then turn a bit to starboard. So instead of, like, passing port to port, because they want to be too close to the shore and to the mm-hmm. ship... They're going to pass starboard to starboard. And this is before the age of radar and GPS and all that. Basically... Yeah, like, the, the, the ships can't really talk to each other. There's no, like, a TBS talk between ships. Yeah, or 
do you know if the stores that had a wireless, maybe they could communicate? Stores that did have a wireless, but, you know, it's kind of hard to, like, talk it within a few moments. So, basically, like, each ship has the rules of the road, like, don't change course during a fog bank. Yeah, basically, the your best defense back then was the Mark 1 eyeball. Pretty much. But uh, if you can't see in a, a if you can't see a problem, then you you got an issue. Now on the bridge of the Empress, Kendall. After they decide they're going to pass starboard to starboard, the fog rolls in. Kendall's not quite certain what the store set is, so for where he's going to think is a cautious move, he's going to order the the Empress to halt and you know, go all ahead stop. Mm -hmm. And he'll and he signals with a horn blast, whistle blast, telling the store set, "I'm going to do so." Now according to the crew of the Empress. They're dead stop in the fog bank. Mm -hmm. They try to look out for the, for the ship, the Storstad. And then to their horror, on the starboard side, they're going to see the Storstad coming right at them. The, the, they'll see the lights first and they'll see the ship. Now, Kendall tries to order all ahead full, cuts the wheel to the starboard, try to get around the Storstad while telling, yelling on the microphone to the, the bridge of the Storstad, put your ship in reverse. But according to Kendall, the Storstad doesn't and they hit the Empress. It's like it hit on the starboard, on the right side, starboard side. Yeah, hit right in the sweet spot, like right behind the number one funnel, between the bulkheads, between the number one and number two boiler rooms, which will be fatal in a few moments. Now, just to backtrack, we're gonna from, go back to the store stats point of view. The, the stores regions. Yeah, from the store stats point of view, the captain, uh, Captain Thomas Anderson, mm -hmm. he is not on the bridge. He is with his wife in, in his cabin, but he's telling his crew, "Hey, if anything pops up, like let me know. Summon me." Yep. The chief mate is a guy named, uh, I think, Toftons. Is that the chief officer, second in command? She was the, yeah, second in command. Okay. He's in command of the bridge. He sees the Empress, and he thinks they're going to pass, you know, port to port. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like red light to red light. Yep. Now, according to the Storstad, they see the Empress turn a bit. You know, they keep the course on downriver. Mm -hmm. Then they... They see the ship kind of right itself, thinking they're going to pass port to port. Then the fog rolls in. Mm -hmm. Now, Tarleton's not too certain where the Empress is, but he believes it's on, its, it's on the ship's on its port side. So, he first gives the order to, like, all like go go to stop. Mm -hmm. Like, put the ship, dead stop in the water. But he doesn't feel too confident that the ship has enough headway to keep its heading, because of the current of the, of the river. He's probably, is he, was he afraid that the... Ship's gonna get pushed onto the shores of the uh, yeah because he's got like the he's got the he's got like the shore on his left hand on his port side left hand side and also like, the Empress yep he wants to keep it away from that okay so he does get the order to kind of move the the helm to the several little bit to the right yep and to tell give the order like go all ahead slow just like keep some headway now according to the Norwegian side of the story they're doing all this because they think the Empress is not still on the port side and they're well clear of it. So, they think the, the Empress is between them and the shore. Yes, yeah, so by going to starboard towards the open water, they will be clear of the Empress. And meanwhile, the Empress thinks that they're on they're on their port side, so they, they turn right. Pretty much. Like, this part's really tricky to... I'm still trying, trying to figure out because, like, both testimonies afterwards, they're going to, like, blame the other ship. Right. But, uh, yeah, in Storsat's point of view, like, they've done everything they thought was possible to clear a collision. Now, what Toffins didn't do is he didn't tell a captain what happened until after, like, he made all the, all his critical decisions. So I believe Anderson is summoned and gets to the bridge just as the fog clears enough to see the lights of the Empress right in front of them. Uh, I mean, I'm not a naval e e sea expert, but I'm assuming that is the last thing you want to see as the captain of a ship. 
Pretty much. Got a bigger ships in front of you. And like Hen Anderson and Tompkins, they try to throw the ship in reverse mm -hmm. to like not hit the ship, but like it's too close. Right. Now, Storstad hits the ship. Mm -hmm. Anderson hears Kendall tell him, like, keep your ship full. They keep like the, the Storstad plugged in the Empress's hole. Yep. So, like, prevent any more war from coming in. Anderson says he does that, but there's forward motion on the Empress that kind of like spins the Storstad around and breaks free from the Empress. According to Kendall, that's not what happened. The, the uh, Ujin crew panicked and like maneuvered out, out of the way. I mean, personally, without reading the testimony, it does I, I do kind of believe Anderson a little bit. I mean, these ships do not stop on a dime. You, do, they're not like uh, sports cars where they you can stop on a dime. It's uh, no, they're not. No, like it, it, it takes a lot of power and momentum to put a ship a ship that size in reverse or stop completely. Like my big point is, both crews did what they thought was right to make sure the ships didn't hit each other but both inadvertently got themselves in harm's way all right so the the the, yeah, the the empress gets hit yep once the store stat breaks away water pours in and the store stat has a reinforced bow to help like break away push away ice because mm -hmm. you know norway especially in the winter it, winter months it's the arctic circle yeah it's there's always ice it's also fully loaded, so there's not much freeboard. I mean, the ship's staying pretty low in the water, so there's more underwater hull underwater to hit the Empress. Ah. It basically means, like, they hit in the worst spot possible between the two boiler rooms where, like, the power for the pumps, the lights, yeah. the engine. And, like, there's a big gash, and I believe, like, 60,000 tons of water is poured in, like, either per minute or per second. It was a high amount. It's a lot of water. And, like, Kendall, he desperately tries to beach the Empress. He says, like, go all ahead full, try to get to the shore. How close was he to the shore? Maybe, like, a couple of miles. But he's told by his engineer, like, sir, we're out of steam. Like, the power's out. And, like, about a minute after the collision, mm -hmm. the lights go out on the Empress. Uh, yeah, so that is probably, to me, that will be, like, the most terrifying experience I, I can think of. Being on a ship that's sinking with the, when, and the lights are out. You can't see what the hell's going on. Now... <clears throat> Try imagine being a passenger on the Empress. It's late at night. It's about two o'clock in the morning. You're mm -hmm. de you're dead sleeping in your cabin. All of a sudden, you're like you might hear a tremor because a lot of survivors say the, the collision wasn't that bad. Like they felt like a bump. Mm -hmm. But like the lights go out. You notice the ship starts to roll, starts to list, it's starting to tilt to the start to the starboard yeah. side. Correct. You don't know the layout of the ship. You've only been on for like a couple of hours. It's late at night. You're just in your night clothes and you're struggling to like, get to the boat deck to get get out of harm's way. And th there's no PA system at this time, so it's not like... Uh, no, like, there's no PA system, and unfortunately, like, a lot of the folks down below in, like, the steerage... They steerage, never had a chance. They didn't. Like, there's some survivors, but very, very few. Like, there's a scramble to get out of the ship. If you weren't out on the ship on the boat deck within, like, five minutes, you were dead. Damn. So, after, like, a couple minutes, the Empress rolls on her side. Mm-hmm. And sl slits beneath the waves. This takes like 14 minutes. So by the time of our coffee break, the ship's down. The ship's under underwater. And this isn't like Titanic where you got like two hours to... You know, all right, like to go through the motions, get the women out on the boats and all no, that. It's this basically is... like it, it ran for himself. Now, to the crew's credit, the crew did everything possible to save the passengers. They got about four to six lifeboats lowered, filled with passengers before the ship goes under. Which is a very good um, record. Considering like the lights go out, this the the davits aren't like electrical power. It, it's all by hand. Uh, block and tackle. Block and tackle. 
And there's a heavy list to starboard, so like the port side boats, you can't launch them because now they're like against the ship. Uh, I think if anybody needs like a, a modern reference, think back to the Costa Concordia that the Italian cruise liner that crashed a number of years ago in the Mediterranean. I think we've all seen the photos in CNN or uh, MSNBC where the ship's tilted on its starboard side. Yeah, and the yeah, basically, basically, some something similar like that to happen. Just the. Passengers on the Concordia were a lot luckier, in my opinion, than um, the people on the Empress. More survived. Now, the big hole in the store stat's going to kill the Empress. What doesn't help is that Kendall did not order the wartight doors closed until after the collision. Do you know why he did that? He didn't really say in his testimony. I think it was I think it was a lapse in judgment. Was he so focused on trying to avoid the ship he forgot to, uh, just in case we get hit? Kind of. Like, the testimony is spotty. Like, both captains, you know, they kind of accuse each other of... Um, of the accident. I think I read one, one point in Lost Liners where uh, Kendall gets on board the store said, walks up to the bird and says, You sunk my ship. You sunk, you sunk my battleship. Okay, that, that was very dark humor. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so the order isn't here until after the collision, which for that point is too late. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the crew down below who were supposed to like shut the doors, they drowned because of the rate of water. Yeah. I think like, in the test in like the, uh, the inquiry, like they, they figured like, yeah, about a minute and a half, the bull rooms were flooded. That's the Krogo spot. What doesn't help also is that the portholes on the ship are also open. Like, not all. I mean, it was, by practice, you were supposed to, well, but, like, by law, you're supposed to like, keep the portholes closed at night, or, like, when bad weather happens. Yeah. In practice, you know, some of the passengers, oh, it's stuffy, I want to keep my, um, my cabin ventilated, so they open the portholes. Yeah, this is before air conditioning, heat, like, personally. Like, central air. That yeah. doesn't help, because the portholes open to the sea, and they, they, too, flood the ship. Yeah, and it, 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 it's probably... She was going to sink, but I think it sank the ship faster with all those portholes open. Yeah, all those factors combined, the ship sinks in 14 minutes. Like I said, by the time for a coffee break, like for a modern worker. And uh, I think some of the survivors, as the ship turned on its side and was starting to settle down, they were on the uh, port side, which is now one of the only spots that are is left on is left to uh, that, that's dry. And I believe I read that they saw people like pounding. Passengers in the port side cabins were pounding on the the portholes, the windows that were stuck open or stuff they couldn't get out. Yeah, which of course you know, they, they couldn't free them, so a lot, a lot of passengers did go down with the ship. Like they're, they're still stuck in there to this day. Yeah. Um, the store sets credit. Like as soon as the collision happened, they got to the scene as quick as they could. Like gingerly, they didn't want any passengers. Mm-hmm. They took their boats in and they tried to rescue as many people as possible from the water. But this is also the St. Lawrence. It's yeah, even in May, the water's freezing, and yeah. it's a strong current, so if folks didn't drown from the current, they froze to death like within the hour. Yeah, it was, I think I read it with either Kendall or some one of the officers who survived. He kept taking a lifeboat out, kept finding survivors until he went out and... Like on his bodies? Bodies, yeah. Yeah, so within like within like half an hour, if you weren't, if you weren't rescued, like there's a good chance you're going to die. You're as good as dead. And the source house crew did they could. The, the wife of Anderson, like, gave over clothing to the survivors because, like, a lot of them are naked or in their night clothes because it hasn't 2 o'clock in the morning. Do you know if there was any help from, like, on shore or anybody else that came came to it? Uh, yes. So, the Empress was able to send a distress call, a wireless, and they were told, all right, help's going to be half an hour away. There were a couple of government vessels, ones like the Evelyn and the Lady Grey, and mm-hmm. they get there on scene, like, within half an hour. But by that point, most of the rescue work is complete. They rescue some folks, but most of the folks who, li- who live are already on the store stand. And they do help with biorecovery afterwards. But there was uh, help. Um, a lot of these survivors are brought to Ramuski. 
and the local township does everything in their power to help with these survivors. Unfortunately, some of them do die because of their injuries or exposure. Yeah. Before the um day, the day is out, but like the local town Bermuski did everything they could to help, and then later they did everything that they could to help with body recovery and like burial. Yeah, that that that's very macabre. Yeah. So we'll talk about the uh, the deaths because for a ship this size, they're pretty tragic. Alright, so the ship has sunk. They're collecting survivors. What happens in the aftermath? So, on board the Empress, there was 1,477 passengers and crew. By dawn's morning and the uh, 20th of May, about 1,012 of them are dead. 1,012. Most of them were trapped in the ship before they had a chance to get out. So if you like dive down there today, you'll still find like remains, I think like uh, bones and like uh, clothing, like oh, shoes. Jesus. Oh Jesus Christ! And most of the passengers died. In fact, more passengers died on the Empress of Ireland than did the Titanic only two years prior. The problem with that is just they're asleep in their cabins, and most of them are below decks. Like the crew had a better chance just because they're dressed, they're alert. They're on. Uh, they're on top of the. They're on the main. The main decks they're, above. Yeah, they're at their stations. Now, it doesn't mean the crew abandoned the passengers of their fate. They did everything they could possible to save the passengers. Just the dynamics of the sinking. They don't have two hours of the Titanic get the boats loaded. So, it's not like that the cruise ship Oceanus that sank off South Africa back in the late 80s and the crew abandoned the passengers? No, that didn't happen. Most of the crew. Most of the crew. All right. I'm sure, I, I don't want to like paint the entire crew as a... No, but when the captain's like one of the first off the boat, that's a problem. You, you got a problem? <laughs> Yeah, that didn't happen on the Empress. They did okay. everything they could to save the passengers, but, you know, they just didn't have a fighting chance. Um, there was 87 first class on board. 36 were saved. There was 253 second class passengers on board, and 48 of them survived. For steerage, there was over 700 in steerage, and about 133 survived. Damn. So, second class and third class had about the same rate of survival, like around 20%. First class had a bit slightly higher um, survivability just because their cabins are looking higher on the on the ship. So yeah. they have a shorter route to get out, out onto the boat deck and into the water. Do you know how many crew died who were saved? There was about, about 400 or so crew. About 172 survived. Okay. Um, the deck officers got wiped out. Besides, like, Captain Kendall was washed off the ship, and I believe the first officer. The rest of the deck officers drowned. Death is, you know, is the end of duty. Pretty much. Uh, the most tragic part of the story is there's about 138 children on board. Like, you know, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. Like, they were young. Only four survived. So, like, one of those heartbreaking scenes is, like, when you look at the photographs taken of getting the coffins ready, you see, like, the ones that are so small, they're only meant for kids. Mm. So, yeah, that was a, that's something to look at, like, during body recovery. Um, also, the Salvation Army have about 150 band members on board, like, from the Salvation Army. Yep. Um, 12 survived. Like, most of them went down with the ship. Like, most of them didn't have a chance because they were in second class and they are in the lineup. Like, either they're killed by the impact or drowned... From the rush of water. Ah, oh, Jesus. So, after the sinking, there is an inquiry to figure out who's to blame. Mm -hmm. This is part of the story that gets tricky, because the captain's testimonies and the crews of both ships are so, like, divergent. One Canadian newspaper, like, mentioned, gee, if you took both captain's testimonies at face value, 
they were two miles apart going full astern when the when the collision occurred. <laughs> so either somebody's gotten their facts wrong or somebody's lying. You know, Kendall really went after the Starsat's crew. He blamed them for hating the ship, leaving the scene, and not coming back to, to rescue. Like everybody plays the blame game. Like I, I, I don't really, I never like besides this incident, I never heard anyone say, "Nope, I screwed up. It's my fault." That's what happens now. Okay. The Starsat's crew, Anderson blames the end person for putting themselves in front of the ship when they're doing everything possible to avoid a collision. With hindsight, I believe both ships had a. Both crews had a factor to play. I mean, both ships did take actions that were different than which is supposed to do. Like, it was like, even like in, in fog, like, don't change direction, like, maintain the same heading. Yep. But because of the fog, now the ship knew too well where the other ship was. They thought they knew where it was, but. Again, this is before radar, GPS, so it's not like you can look on a on a screen and say, oh, he's. Yeah, the ship's three miles off, I mean, off to our right. Even with radar, you'll go to the 1950s, just at the end of your door in the Stockholm Collide, and they both have radar, but both crews kind of screwed up. And mm. We could do an episode on that if people like like our uh, specials on Lost Liners. I got all to refresh that. Yeah, uh, Kendall was criticized for going full astern, dead stop in, in the fog bank. Like, why don't you just keep going, like maintain your heading? Okay. He was also, he was also criticized for not closing water doors until after the collision. Like, if you're that cautious, why did you wait... To close the doors. But the Canadian Inquiry, and this is held by Lord Mercy, and this is the same Lord Mercy who will be, who's in charge of the investigation for the Titanic. And he, he's a British. There were, there were two inquiries into the thing in Titanic. You had the American Inquiry, and then you had the uh, British Inquiry. Yeah, so for the one in Canada, that inquiry put most of the blame on the crew of the Storstad. Now, they didn't sit well with the Norwegians and the consulate. So they... So there was a Norwegian Inquiry, and it absolved the crew of the store set from blame and put most of the blame on the Empress. So, like, who do you think was responsible? It kind of depends which camp you're in. If you're in Canada, probably the Norwegians. If you're from Norway, probably the Canadians, the uh, the British. You were also telling me you looked at a lot of, like, newspaper articles at the time that were very, uh... Yeah, I got a lot of my sources from uh, 14 Minutes by James Kroll. It's one of the few books on the Empress of Ireland. It, this is not a very well-known incident unless you're, like, into, like, Canadian history. Or maritime history. Yeah, compared to like Lusitania and the Titanic, like the Empress gets very little mention. I'll I'll, I'll say why later. But you know, according to Kroll, um, a lot of like the local newspapers, like English speaking newspapers, mm-hmm. um, think like the fake news of today, like that that were thrown around. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that thrown around too. There's, like there's always been fake news for since the dawn of since the dawn of humankind. Like every big newspaper had their angle. And a lot of the English speaking newspapers, when they talk about like cowardice or you know. People like hacking their hacking away to save the um, save themselves. Mm-hmm. It's never like the white Anglo-Saxons. It's always the foreigners, like the, the folks who can't speak English on board. Like they're the villains. They're like they're the cowards. And of course, like the foreign like the foreign travelers, they can't respond because they can't speak English. So I think you you told me what, you read a little bit about that. You said. Uh, there's probably heroism with um, a lot of these the foreign passengers, but because nobody ever asked them or yeah, nobody asked them, and there's like no at least at least from what I seen, there's like no foreign newspaper to like get their side of the story. Do you know like the demographic like breakup of the passengers? Like was some like Norwegian, Italian? I I don't really know. Okay, I mean if I have to guess, like most most of the foreign travelers are being like steers, that's the cheapest, right? So like there was heroism with like the foreign travelers. And you, you will see this with the Titanic and with Lusitania. 
Because unfortunately, in 1910s, you know, the idea of like race, relation, ethnicity, like how they viewed that is way different than what we view today. It's kind of the same story we told about in our uh, history podcast on uh, Black and Black during Black History Month. How our views of race were are oh my god, like so different today than what they were like 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Pretty much, I me. Mean, you know the the Fox News is of uh, back in back in those days. You know, some some of like the, the foreigners, like the foreign menace, like they. Put people's lives in danger for uh, themselves. Man, we still got that same rhetoric crap. Yeah, so like side. history doesn't repeat word for word, but it rhymes pretty damn close. History's a cycle. Daenerys Targaryen, I think, said it best when you, we should break the wheel. Yeah, but then Daenerys went psycho. Well, technically she broke the wheel, she just did it in the worst <laughs> way possible. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the two inquiries are conflicting. Now, what I mentioned earlier, I believe both sides screwed up. Both sides made mistakes and put them... In harm's way. Hindsight is twenty twenty and everything, but uh, if you were the captain of the Empress or the captain of the store stat, what do you think the best course of action would have been? I think just try to maintain course and, you know, go to pass them. Just unfortunately, you know, both crews, both captains, both guys in charge made decisions which they thought would keep the ships away, but actually put the, those ships on a collision course. I think also you're supposed to, like, hit the foghorn every, like, five minutes or so. That's what I was reading about in... Uh, Lusitania, about that. I mean, the, the culprit's fog. It was bad luck and fog. Like yeah. the fog. Without the fog, there would have been no collision. But with the fog, like they had, they got confused and both sides made mistakes. Well, you can't arrest the weather, can you? Unfortunately, not. <laughs> can't put the, the nature on trial. So, the Empress's story isn't that well known compared to, let's say, the Titanic and Lusitania. Everybody knows Titanic. Everybody knows about the band played on uh, Iceberg, Folly of Man, Jack and Rose, which never happened. Never did happen, even though that there were people sort of based off, like the names are based off of. Like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I am I am really digressing here, so I'm gonna let you go back to what you were saying. So the Empress is not like the Titanic. It's not this maiden, like the world's largest, most luxurious ship, sinking on its main voyage. Mm-hmm. It's a good ship, but it's not like the same statue of Titanic, and it sunk. To me, it's like the Wiring. If you're a Star Wars fan, it's uh, not quick and flashy, but gets the job done. Pretty much. And she sunk on a typical run from Quebec to Liverpool, not on this main voyage to the luxurious port of New York or mm-hmm. Southampton, where kind of like the big the big names are, like the big press. So fortunately, that happens. Um, like the, that divergence of testimony, like who's really at fault? You know, it's it's not a clear cut story like an iceberg warning or uh, a torpedo. Also, like. This happens in May of 1914, and a couple months later in July, um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, they're in Sarajevo. Pretty sure June 28th he was... I think it was June 28th. Was... Alright, so it was June. I'll get my, late, my, I'll get my days a little mixed up. Late but... June. Okay, the uh, this is before Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir it, to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Empire. Him and his wife wind up on the wrong end of a gun in Sarajevo. Oh. And that sparks the July crisis. That sparks the opening months of World War One. And and like the Empress story is swallowed in the reports from you know in the first summer of 1914, like hundreds of thousands are being killed. I could do a podcast about that. I mean, come August, but the uh, guns of August. I don't know. Sorry, I'm jumping into the future. Yeah. So unfortunately, the story of the Empress was lost to most major media and most of society. Yeah. Once like once war breaks out in Europe, like it gets pushed to the way, to the wayside. I did a little experiment back in grad school. There was this, I forget the website application. Like you can Google type in names mm-hmm. and see what you get back for literature. How many, uh, like how much numbers? Yep. Or like a lot of Google searches. 
And I know it's like Titanic's number one, Lusitini number two, and Way at the Bottom was Empress of Ireland. Which is sad, because th- this, this is its own personal story in and of itself. I mean, I mean... It, and also, the Empress doesn't have, like, the top t- crust of society that draws in all the press. There's, there's no, no Vanderbilt, there's no Guggenheim. There's, there's no, no John Jacob Astor with his no little Astor. pretty wife, Madeline. There was an actor, Lawrence Irvine, who went down with his wife. And his story is kind of tragic, because, like, he's with his wife in a cabin. He gets... Because when the ship shifts, he smacks his face on the on the side. Yep. His wife's kind of, like, crying. He's like, it's okay, it's okay. And this other gentleman who... Kind of like knew him, mm-hmm. wanted to give Irving his life belt, but he tells him like, "Hey, save yourself; it will be all right." And I guess according to that survivors, like they were last seen like holding each other's arms as the ship went under, so both of them drowned. Jesus. But like besides him and a few others, um, there's not like big names that draw in the papers. Do you know what happened to Captain Kendall after this? So Captain Kendall doesn't really take command of the sea again. Like it had a big impact on him. Now, during the outbreak of World War One, he is over in Antwerp. The, the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway, has a uh, station there. And when the Germans, the Kaiser's armies, are marching into Belgium, like, yep. there's a scramble to get out of, like, the way the... Um, oh, yeah, that... that, that, armies, like, that I think Winston Churchill had a part to play with that, too. Like, he sent, like, the... A lot of, like, the naval servicemen, part of the Royal Naval Division, went there to uh, try to prop up the defense. So I jumped ahead. I'm sorry. Kendall does a very good thing. He takes command of two CPR liners, mm-hmm. his old ship, the Montross, and I think the Montreal. Mm-hmm. Now the the Montross engines could work, but it was out of coal. The Montreal had coal, but the engines were out of order. So they basically put the coal from the Montreal to the Montross, towed the Montreal, and packed the ships with refugees. And huh. took him out of the estuary and towards uh, England. Well, I'll be damned. Before the um, Germans came in. And after that, like, he has a, a land-based uh, assignment. He dies, I believe, I think in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. He lives, like, to 90 before he dies, so... He's, um, in the 1960s. Um, Thomas Anderson, like the store sad, they play their part in World War One up until they sunk in March of 1917 by a U-boat. Oh, the store side sank? It did. Anderson and most of his crew survived, but the store sad was sunk by a U-boat. Yeah, that's pretty much the story of the Empress of Ireland, and since I talked about U-boats, I'm going to segue over to my brother Ian, who will talk about the Lusitania. Uh, thanks guys. So yeah, as we mentioned, you know, Empress doesn't get the recognition it the incident doesn't get the recognition it deserves because of the opening of World War One. The next, the Lusitania, however, does for much different reasons. So again, we were talking about like major shipping lines. So like Canadian Pacific Railway was kind of like run of the mill, run of the mill line. Uh, the Lusitania is actually is a much luxu- more bigger, faster, and more luxurious ship than the Empress, and I'll I'll post pictures of it on our on the uh, podcast page. So. Uh, the Lusitania it was constructed around 1907 for the Cunard Line. It is one of the major British shipping companies in the world at that time. It is the major rival to White Star Line. So anybody who knows Titanic, they know White Star Line. Cunard is its major rival. They've been going on, it's been uh, almost like, I think, 80, I think uh, 80 years the first Cunard Liner came out, like the 1840s, 1850s. So they're a very well known like ship line in the uh, in the in the uh, shipping shipping world. Lusitania and her sister Mauritania are constructed, I believe, in the River Clyde up in Scot 
up in uh, Scotland, major shipping industry up there. And, then, and their construction is a little bit, it's, it's interesting because it's not just like a typical, uh, you know, civilian liner. Uh, so around this time, you got, because you got like the British Empire, French Empire, you got the, the German Empire. Every, like every, everyone is competing, I would say compete, competition of egos. Because, you know, you, you got, like, the, the political stuff we can talk about, like, later. But uh, it, it also affected, like, the shipping world. So every every nation's trying to outbeat the other one. And, like, you know, which ship has, is more luxurious, which is large, which is faster. So a couple of years back, the, uh, the German, I think the uh, Hamburg, Hamburg America line of company. I believe that's, that's the, the German company. Sounds about right. They had won the coveted Blue Ribbon Award, which is basically fastest ship fastest ship on the... Uh, Make, can make the fastest crossing. So it, it's a big blow to national prestige in uh, Great Britain because, you know, it, yeah, it, it, Britain's an island. There's a lot of investment in the shipping industry. So Cunard and uh, the British Admiralty, the uh, you know, the Royal Navy, the heads of the Royal Navy, they uh, have kind of come to an agreement that the British Admiralty is going to help fund a new type of uh, cruise liner for Cunard. Which is supposed to be faster and will be able to win the prize, be- like the the blue ribbon back, and get a lot of prestige back for for Great Britain. In exchange, they are they are created in a way that if war comes, they can be easily converted into an auxiliary merchant, auxiliary crew, auxiliary cruiser for the Royal Navy. And I'm just, this is going to play a part in the uh, aftermath of the Lusitania sinking. But uh, that that is the creation of the uh, Lusitania and her sister ship Mauritania. Basically, an auxiliary cruiser is you put some naval reins on board and put some guns on it. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And this is only in the event of war breaking out, which like I could go on and on about, like you know, the political machinations of you know what the what I'm not, it's like what the fuck was going on between like group the British and the German Empire at the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. The ships are designed to beat back the Blue Ribbon, which they do. I believe Lusitania won the Ribbon first, then Mauritania came afterwards. And they kind of like trade it back and forth. They did, yeah. They became like the... They're, they're the queens of the seas. They they uh, they were some of the fastest ships on the ocean at that time. And, yeah, they won back the awards. And by, 19, by 1915, Lusitania, I believe it's its 102nd crossing of the Atlantic, I believe. It's like 102nd, 107th. I always get those those two numbers confused off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah, as we said, war breaks out in August of 1914, at least for Great Britain. Great Britain does initially get involved in World War One, but they do once Germany, viola- Germany violates uh, Belgian neutrality, and then that cascades into open warfare. So, we come to 1915. It's been about, um, what is it, like, eight months or so since the war broke out, eight or nine months. And uh, a big weapon that the Germans invested a lot of money in is the is the uh, submarine. Uh, the designation for the submarine is under seaboat in Germany. U-boat for short. Uh, you know, a lot of folks know what U-boats are. Okay, I don't have to go too much about that. So, yeah, uh, a lot of... I'm going to say a lot of people didn't take the submarine threat seriously in the beginning. Because most submarines were slow. They... Uh, weren't they? They couldn't go very far. It's not like the nuclear submarines it's today. Most of them were diesel powered, some little battery power. Yeah, they d- didn't have a great range, but when used properly, they could cause a lot of damage. In fact, the British are going to learn the hard way. Like the first couple of months, they'll lose a light cruiser, the Pathfinder, from a U-boat with then, m- major loss of life. Then they lose like the 
They yeah. lose th- these three old cruisers, the Akbor, Cressy, and the... Uh, yeah, well, the they're kind of called the live bait squadron. Yeah, they couldn't go fast and everything, but... And, like, in a space of an afternoon, like, these three ships are sunk, like, a, a couple of thousand sailors drown. Yeah, I, th- I think at first I thought it must have been, like, an internal explosion. Then as the second, third ship sank, like, oh, shit, we got, we've been torpedoed. Yeah, so slowly the British are realizing that these U-boats aren't as, um... Or, Aren't are as... a lot more dangerous than what they thought. Yeah, so this comes into part of the story of Lusitania, because, you know, British passenger lines are still going back and forth, commerce is still going on, the economy, travels is still going on. So th- this comes into a part of the story of Lusitania and the submarine that's going to sink it, U-20. So, us, when are we going to start with Lusitania, like... You want to just jump right into to May of 1915, what was going on? Why don't you explain to the folks what the U-boat purpose was? The whole idea of, like, unrestricted submarine warfare. Okay, so at this time, uh, Germany had been in an arms race with Great Britain for the last 10 or 15 or so years, building its navy. You got the Germany, German High Seas Fleet and the British, um, like, Royal Navy or the... The Grand Fleet, Scapa Flow. Yeah. Ship for ship, the Germans cannot match the uh, the British... Yeah, just even though the Germans sink a lot of money into building warships, just the British, they've been in the game a lot longer. Mm-hmm. They got a bigger navy, and when the Germans build up their navy, the British only built up theirs. Yeah. So, but Germany has an engine submarines. The, the way they deploy the submarines and the number of submarines they have. So they're gonna, they decide. All right, we're at war with France and and Great Britain on the Western Front right now. Our armies are fighting to death in uh, France and Belgium. We are trying to need to knock out. Well, we need to knock out both nations. For Great Britain, we have an advantage because we're Britain's an island. So any supply, any anything that they need, like food, medicine, like ammunition that they can't create on an island, need to import it from overseas. So they figure they can just they can knock out Great Britain without being her army by strangling, basically cutting off the island and strangling it to death through its supplies. That's where the U-boats come in. So you're gonna have a lot of U-boats operating in the North Sea, operating in like the Western approaches from uh, the Americas into Great Britain. The made around the uh, major shipping ports, Liverpool, Southampton, um, off, off the coast of Ireland as well, as well, because at this point Ireland is a part of the British Empire, so they are in the war as well. They're in the war as well. Does come the issue though of the best way to attack the shipping uh, around this time? All these U-boat, the U-boats were ordered to the the general rule of warfare was operating under the old cruiser rules, I believe, from the Napoleonic times, as it was established in the Napoleon. Basically, you sell the ship, take the crew off, destroy yeah. the cargo, and sink the ship. Yeah, uh, they do that. It's very hard though to do it with a with, with like a with a U boat. Uh, they realize that they're not sinking as much tonnage as they can if they just like say no holds barred, just like sinking without warning. And uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get uh, more into this later because uh, if they do this, the Admiralty ability does give orders for any like ship going through British ship, like hey, if you spot a U boat, do your best to ram and sink it. So that's going to play a part into the decision-making of the uh, German Submarine Command we'll talk about. But the Lusitania is uh, traveling back to back to uh, Liverpool. It's commanded by a man named William Turner, who's had a bunch of, he's, he's had plenty of years of experience on the sea. He's one of Kinar Liner's best uh, sea captains. Not very personable. He, comparing him to Captain Smith of the Titanic, where if you learn about Captain Smith, it was like the captain's always like the head of this like great... 
you know, in like first class talking to like the Athlon Society. Turner doesn't like that. Turner likes operating on the sea. He likes the solitude. He likes working with his crew. He likes giving orders to his uh, his crew. He doesn't really like mingling with the uh, with the passengers. But he's very good at his job, and he's very high up there in in the Cunard line. So they created a special position to help him out. The staff captain, basically the second command. Staff Captain is going to be a man by name of Anderson, and part of his job too is to, while Els running the ship, he's also in charge of, um, you know, being the entertainer basically for the for the uh, passengers. So he does his job very well. But as they leave, there is a warning in, uh, I believe, uh, most of the newspapers for like from the German embassy in Washington saying, "Hey, like we're at war with Great Britain, so if you board a British ship carrying a British flag, like do so at your own risk. At their own risk, yeah." Now, so, that, like, warded some travelers off Lusitania, but a lot of folks kind of ignored it. Yeah. Um, and then this ship, in this uh, particular cruise, you're going to have, like, famous American, famous uh, one people like uh, Alfred Vanderbilt, you know, the Vanderbilt family. Uh, I believe uh, Charles Frome. Charles Frome, yeah. I think the uh, movie filmmaker at the time. I think a playwright, I believe. Playwright, all right. I got that confused. Uh, a number of other people. And a uh, funny thing with Vanderbilt, he actually, I believe, had a ticket on Titanic at the... Uh, I was being voyage, but I think at the count the last possible second, he was either sick or he wanted to spend a few more days in the country with his uh, fam- family or girlfriend. I forget the entire story, but I think after the Titanic sank, they were like, "Oh man, you got you like you were lucky that uh, you weren't on board." That's the bullet. That's the bullet. Yeah, three years later. So Lusitania takes off. Uh, she the- should we talk about the cargo now or later? Uh, now we can talk about the cargo now because this is going to be a big controversy as uh, after the sinking and uh, who's to blame for the sinking. So part of the ship's manifest, and you can if you just want to do a simple Google search like Lusitania manifest, uh, it does show that she has a few tons of uh, small arms ammunition that is stored in I think her number one hold, number one cargo yeah, hold. I think the hole in the bow. So it's like there's shrapnel case, there's shrapnel shells, there's rifle cartridges. And the Austin actually had dug up some research on these, and a lot of these small arms came from uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Yeah, from the factories, not from the streets. <laughs> we'll give a shout-out to uh, uh, some local Connecticut history guys. Woo! <laughs> All right, yeah, but she, she did have shrapnel shells, and um, I don't think it was, like, the high-explosive ammunition that people claim it was after, after the sinking. Yeah, so according to Diana Preston's book on the Lusitania... U.S. law at that time, you can allow, like, not exploding munitions on board the ship. Yeah. So, cartridges, shrap... Like, no, like, high explosives, like gun cotton, but non-explosive stuff. Yeah. It was one of those legal loopholes that the British did exploit. They exploit, yeah. Hey, they didn't break... Technically, they didn't break the law. <laughs> now, compared to, like, a typical freighter... Lusitania's cargo holds like maybe one tenth the size, so it's a very small yield compared to like what a freighter has. Yeah, but there's still cargo on board with munitions, and I believe later, like yeah, everything was contraband. Like if they were stopped by like a German ship, they could like take like contraband off and destroy it. They could have, but I mean, I don't like because people like people who have researched the sinking have gone back and forth for like the last hundred years about illegal munitions and all that, and it's gonna this is kind of play a part in the uh, cause. They, they believe the cause of the sinking. Uh, anyway, Lusitania is uh, traveling to Liverpool. Around this time, a German submarine is operating off the uh, western approaches of England and Ireland from the Atlantic. This is the U-boat uh, U-20, commanded by a man named Walter Schrieger. They've had a few successes, sinking uh, some light freighters and a schooner. 
Uh, Sank 2 freighters, the Candidate and the Centurion, I think operating by the cruiser rules. So it gives a chance that gives the, the crew should get off. So at, at this point, like around May 6th, May 7th, he's, uh, you know, they're running low on, like, they're running low on fuel. They, like, again, like these U-boats cannot, these submarines cannot operate like a thousand miles from shore. They can maybe operate a few hundred, but then they have to go back. They got very short, very short tours of duty. It's not like a new goose submarine where you can spend four or five months under sea. Yeah. And never see the light of day. These are like, no, you got like, you are out of fuel. You got to get your ass back to, back to port in uh, Germany. So I think she makes a log entry in his, uh, Diary, like his war diary, it says, "All right, like we're, we're running low on supplies and, and uh, fuel, so we're gonna start heading back. We're gonna cut through Liverpool. We might get lucky and send another ship on the way back." And uh, yeah, this is around May seventh, so it kind of sets up this meeting with Lusitania and U twenty. And, and uh, yeah, us, so what do you want to know about the sinking on May seventh? Like any like, well, let's do like the blow by blow account first, and then go over the controversies, like a lot of the conspiracy theories that happened after the sinking. Okay. All right, so it's May 7th, 1915. Lusitania is about, I'd say another 15 to 16 hours going into Liverpool. This timing is going to play a part in Captain Turner's, some of Captain Turner's decisions. So uh, part of what Captain Turner is going to do, he's going to, from what I've read like over the last uh, couple of years, that he wants to time it so he can bring Lusitania in over the Mersey uh, sandbar off of uh, Liverpool and have to wait because he's got this fear that if he waits outside of Liverpool, then he's got a better chance of running into a U-boat. So he's, he's going to slow down Lusitania enough that she is going to, uh, like, just time it just right so they can get over there without, you know, with the sandbar before the tide changes. So he slows down from, like, its top speed of, like, right, they weren't running at top speed at the time. They went from, like, 21 knots to 18 knots. Fast enough for a U-boat, but because like because of the war needs, she can't fire all of her boilers up for top speed. Yeah, like just because no, she'll she eats coal fast. She does, and I probably mentioned too around this time, uh, a lot of the crew members that are on the Lusitania, they are not like the regular seasoned veterans of the Atlantic crossing over the last several years. Because all those guys have been called up for service to the Royal Navy. Yes, yeah, so you got like a lot of like new sailors, people that just like got off the street. A lot of they don't have a lot of experience. And Austin, you mentioned that you heard about those like a low morale with the crew. Yeah, a little bit in Preston's work, not not the greatest morale. Yeah, so like a lot of these guys don't know each other. It, it, it's it's like taking your A team off of a big assignment and putting like in the the B or C team. C team. Yeah, pretty much. So that's gonna play a part of it too. Also, around this time, a lot of the like a lot of the crew, like the whoever suffers season hands and a lot of, like the new guys, they are down below in the cargo holds, getting the cargo ready to offload later that later that day in Liverpool. So they're all in the cargo hold around this time. It was early afternoon. I want to say around two o'clock or so. There's like a late lunch on board. A lot of the passengers talked about that. There was a yeah. So around this time, U twenty is surfaced, and uh, Schrieger, I believe Schrieger is the one on the conning tower, eating his lunch, and he sees a ship off in the distance, and he brings his uh, officers up and says, "Hey, if we can get closer." Like at that point, the ship is turning away, like they can't catch up to him. But then they notice that she starts turning towards her, and they don't know why, but they believe it. This is a great stroke of luck. I'll explain a little bit about that uh, during this layer testimony and you know survivors' accounts. Uh, Turner, there have been a, a lot of fog rolled in off the coast of Ireland at that point, so Turner wasn't exactly sure of where he was, so he wanted an accurate as accurate as bearing as, as possible. Uh, 
So what he did is he uh, put the ship on, he turned the ship to a, a straight heading for about 40 minutes, and he did what's called, I believe, a uh, four-point uh, navigation, like navigational, uh, navigational, uh, fine, I can't, I can't think of the word right now. You say it's very accurate, but it takes a long time. Yeah, basically, you hold the you hold the ship's course for about forty minutes, and you have your officers take point landmark points off the off the on the Irish coast for landmarks, so you can pinpoint your exact location. It's accurate. It's just time consuming, and there were other faster methods. There were faster methods that would have given just about the similar point, but me personally, I don't think Turner really believed that the ship was in danger. I mean. I, I don't think he took the U-boat threat seriously, but then again, a lot of people weren't taking the U-boat threat seriously, even after, uh, like, the opening salvos of the first uh, 1914. So th that's my personal opinion. I mean, if somebody else uh, can tell, like, give me their opinion, that's cool, too. But basically, the two, the ship and the U-boat are on a collision course. Yeah, it, just, it was just this stroke of ill luck that uh, they, they turned right at that moment, because they, they got closer to U-20, and they... Be able to get within the firing range, so... This is around the southeastern part of Ireland, near the old head of Kinsale. Yep. And, uh, I believe some fish, like, like some, uh, local boys, we were able to watch the ship go down when it gets hit. But, they get close enough, so Schrieger orders the U-boat to dive. Prepares one torpedo. And, uh... I think it's the last one. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, no, I think they had, they had, they had a few more, because, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it later that day. So, as they get close enough, Schrieger orders his, uh crew to fire the torpedo. They fire one torpedo and it takes about 35 seconds for that torpedo to leave the U-boat and hit the Lusitania. Now, again, a, a lot of people were eating lunch at this time. They had a late lunch. Um, everyone's looking forward to getting... A lot of people are up on decks. Everyone's looking forward to leaving, getting off the ship later. Like, no one has any idea what's going on. Like, I mean, there's like some notion, hey, might run into trouble, but it's a big ship. We're fast. We're not going to be in danger. Yeah. And I want to say that Turner knew that there could be U-boats in the area. I think he had just received, they, earlier that day, they received a report from the Admiralty final that, hey, there's a U-boat operating off the old head of Conceal. Be careful. So, trying to give him some... It, it, this is going to go back and forth because, af, like, afterwards, like, turn, the Admiralty is going to try to throw Turner under the bus. Turner is going to say everything possible. There's going to be a lot of finger-pointing, as we said in the... Uh, Empress of Ireland, sorry. Left finger pointing, but the torpedo's on its way, and I think some passengers and crew spotted it first. Yeah, one of the lookout, one of the able seamen who was acting as an extra lookout on the starboard side spots it first. Spots it before the guys on the crow's nest. He shouts torpedo on starboard bow. And Turner gave an order to go hard to, hard to port or hard to starboard. I think Turner was reaching back to the bridge, yeah. They, I think there was, I believe there was an order given to like turn the ship hard to starboard, try to get out of the way, but... It's too late. There's not enough time. It's it's just too close. I believe that the torpedo hits right under the bridge by the number one funnel. It hits right under the bridge, number one funnel. I think just in the front of the first, in like boiler, in the first boiler room. Now that's the first explosion, and all the survivors attest that like a minute or two later, there's a larger second explosion. Yeah, and the ship's go still the ship is still going at full speed too, like eight to eighteen knots. And about I mean, yeah, also said about a minute later, there's another larger explosion that um, I think even the the, the guys on the U boat felt. And that that's not gonna be the, I want I want to say death blow, but that is what's gonna be like the final like nail in the coffin. Yeah, it's gonna accelerate the sinking. So we are gonna we're not gonna talk too much about the sinking because uh, it, like, I don't think people want a minute by minute account of like oh my god who who was here who was where. Yeah, it's been kind of done to that, but basically the ship sinks in like eighteen minutes. Yeah, um, a lot of the power goes out. 
almost immediately, uh, the crew members on the bridge, like they're, they're having a hard time turning the rudder. And I think the, the, the telegraph is stuck, so they can't order the ship to stop. Yeah, so Turner did try to beach the ship, but like the ship wouldn't answer the helm. Wouldn't answer the helm. Um, the, the, still... crew in the, in the, the crew in the cargo hold. Yeah, so the power goes out. So the elevator that the car, the crew take to get from the cargo hold to the deck goes out. So a lot of the crew members were in the cargo hold drowned. I think a few might have made it out once the ship filled with water, but most of them didn't. And there was a hair, a pawning tale of a lot of passengers tried to take the first class elevator up to the boat deck. Yeah. And once the power went out, they got stuck there. And uh, there was like survivor accounts of folks trapped in the elevator, like trying to get out as the water rose. Yeah. This is kind of why, like, in an emergency, like in an office building, they tell you do not use the elevator, use the stairs. Yeah. Unfortunately, that, that happened. Yeah, so I don't want to go too much detail into that. There's a lot of chaos on the deck. Um, again, like the Empress, the ship's going down quick. Because of the heavy list, the ships aren't listed starboard on its right side. Mm-hmm. A lot of the boats cannot be launched on the port side because now the gravity's like pushing them towards the ship. Yeah. I also read, too, that a lot of the uh, the boats they had have been painted over over the years. So so, so tough to get, go, get them out. Yeah, I don't think... What I read, like this new crew had a lot of uh, experience, like loading lifeboats. They're, like the the block, they still use the block and tackle. There was no like electrical power for these davits. I've been reading testimony accounts of like the boats swinging out, like swinging out, then swinging right back into the side of the ship, breaking apart, spilling everyone overboard. Unfortunately, so some boats do get away, but many of them don't have a chance. Yeah, um, there was that account of the American waving his gun around to force I, I, the. Uh, I forget the guy's name, but there was, I think, a first-class passenger. He thought he was going to take charge, and he pulled a gun out, had them load, because there was some of the crew, like, withholding people alone in the lifeboats. It was too dangerous. He says, put them on board, takes the gun out. These passengers get on board. Again, the lifeboat swings and smashes the side of the ship, and they all drown. They all, like, either, either get killed by the impact or drown. And you said he had Spiros guilt later? I think so. If I can remember the guy's name, I will I will mention him in later in the description. But I'm like, all right, because, again... Uh, when I read it, I'm like, dude, you're not helping anybody. What, what the fuck are you doing? A lot of panic, a lot of poor decisions that got people killed. Yeah, there's heroism for sure. Just like no one, no one had any idea what, what what to do in this accident, and a lot of people didn't know how to put their life preservers on, life life belts. There was no like uh, like today, like in the in airlines when they tell you how to put your life like your life jacket on and your how life to use- jackets, your seat belts, like when the air. Airline tends to tell you to pay attention, and most folks just play on their phones. Yeah, there was, there was none of that in 1959 in Lusitania. They, they had war- warning signs up up, uh, up around the passenger area saying, hey, this app put your life preserver on. But as we all know, when you put precaution signs up, people tend not to read them. It happened, happened today, it happened in 1915. Yeah, it's just, unfortunately, it's human nature. Unless, like, you're told something, you, you're completely oblivious. I got a very poor uh, opinion on human nature, but uh, that's my brother here is the optimist. Somewhat. So a lot of these passengers, they put their life belts on, lepers are on the wrong way, and they go in the water, and they drown. Cause yeah, like, they, they flip upside down, they break their backs, and yeah, they, they basically drown. Uh, there is some heroism. There's a band belt was seen, you know, giving life belts and time to, like, women and children. Even though he couldn't swim. He couldn't swim, so he goes down to the ship. Uh, Charles Frome. Yeah, I think... He, I think he had, like, other arthritis or rheumatism. He had some ailment that... He couldn't really move around much. He needed a cane. Yeah. So he didn't really make an attempt to save himself. He's like counseling. Uh, was it Theodore Pope? 
Yeah. Or like another socialite yeah. in first class. He's, he like he quotes from Peter Pan like, Why fear death? This is the greatest adventure of all time. I believe him and another first class passenger were in the uh, nursery tying life preservers to the cribs so the babies would survive. Which many of them didn't, but you know, they tried. A lot of them didn't, yeah. Um, I think they were spotted by the third officer, Bestick, I believe his name was. But uh, yeah, the she sinks very quickly and I believe... She's in what? It's only like two hundred, like one hundred fifty feet of water, two hundred feet of water. It's, yeah, very it, shallow. So the bow hits the bottom, but the ship still just fills up and sinks yeah. all the waves. Uh, Captain Turner is on the, I think, the starboard bridge wing, as it he just washed over. Anderson, the staff captain, is trying to um, help launch the lifeboats, trying to you know do his job. He doesn't survive. I think he was his body was found later floating face down. So he, he drowned. To, he drowned. Yeah. Uh, the first officer, Piper, survived. Uh, I forget the second officer's name. I know more about the uh, Titanic officer than I do about the Lusitania officers. But uh, the radio operator gets out a message to Ireland like, hey, come at once. We're listening quickly. Yeah. Pretty much all the rescue vessels had a Queenstown Island, which is now a cove today. Yeah. But I think a lot of them didn't go directly because they were afraid, like, oh, shit, like, if we go there, we're going to get sunk too by the U-boat. Yeah, it took them about three hours to get there by the time the rescuers finally got to the scene. Uh yeah, the uh, Rollis operator, I think Robert, is that a, I think it was Robert Leith. Yeah, really, the guy's name was Leith. It was because he basically stayed till like the water was in the uh, wireless room, just lifting. And he didn't actually have main power. He had to use like the emergency batteries to get out that message. So it's like, all right. I get very emotional when I read about like men and women that like stand at their post until like the last possible second and sometimes they don't make it out. Did he make it out? He made it out, yeah. He was like the Jack Phillips of uh, the Lusitania. Yeah, so he got lucky. He got yeah, he got lucky. A lot of people didn't. Yeah, a lot of the folks in the water will either drown or die of exposure. Because even though it's May, it's still the North Atlantic. It's still very cold. Yeah. So we won't too much about the sinking. She goes down, and uh, yeah, all us left are the survivors. There's like what 1,900 on board in total. Yeah, and uh, about 1,200 drown, and about 130 or so are Americans. Yep. And they the survivors get to Queenstown, and then some of them get off at uh, make it to Liverpool, and. Yeah, a, a lot of them, I, I've read about a lot of them have had survivor's guilt or like P, what we would call, I would call PTSD today. And back then there was really no um, treatment, proper treatment for uh, PTSD. It doesn't really come out until like I think 19, the 1940s and World War, Second World War. Yeah, so just very harrowing. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the images that killed me the most was like the grave sites, even like the little kids, little kitty coffins. Yeah, I will not post those pictures up on the uh, pet. Facebook page. No, if, if folks want to see them, they can, they can look it up themselves. Yeah, but I, I don't want to get, like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to post pictures of dead children. No. But, uh, yeah, so U-20, she uh, sinks the ship, tries to take another uh, steamer, like, a couple hours later, but torpedo misses, and then she goes home. And, uh, yeah, so we will talk a bit about the controversy of uh, the Zutania sinking and this aftermath, because it becomes a international incident. Where do you want to start us? What do you want to ask me? Why don't we start about the submarine and the reaction from the Germany? All right. So initially, the uh, the German uh, ap- the German the German uh, Admiralty the for the high seas fleet and the German uh, Chancellery, uh, very I think initially very happy that the uh, the ship was sunk. It was an enemy ship. It was one of the largest ships on the well, at the time. And uh, initially, there the U twenty crew were treated as heroes. Yeah, uh, there's even yeah, you can Google like images like there's uh, images of like these German medals with like the war with Lusitania sinking. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't think, uh, according to Diana Preston, who is copy of his book, I, copy of her book, I will put in the uh, post. Uh, initially, I don't think the like the German government, like at least the the military, ver, military part of the government, which was basically all the government, the uh, they didn't really uh, understand the political and social implications of uh, the, the sinking. Up until they saw the world's reaction, they kind of backpedaled. They, they backpedaled, yeah, and uh, it, it, it was a big shock. I mean, even though it was a British ship, she was a passenger liner, supposed to be, um, like, neutral, Don't you don't sink passenger liners, and the fact that there were over 100 Americans on board that died sent, like, shockwaves and anger waves through, uh, rippling through uh, America. Um, in the broader scheme of things, like, I will mention, like, they, the British Empire, British were trying to, uh, at least Winston Churchill was probably one of the leading, uh, leading figures. Before he was the Prime Minister in... Uh, of Great Britain in 1940, World War II, he was the first Lord of the Admiralty. Which was a very good one, apparently. I liked him, but I'm a Churchill fanatic, and you have told me purely that he wasn't, you know, he has... He, has he the, made mistakes. As we all do. Just his ones got people killed. Yeah, but at the time, he was first Lord of the Admiralty, which I believe was like the highest civilian position, leadership position in the uh, British, British, in the, uh, British Navy. But, uh, yeah, uh... They were trying to get. They were seeing like maybe if we can get American involved. We can we, we can win the war. Like we we can like defend uh, win the war against Germany. Get more support, which is going to become a problem when the investigation, the inquiry goes into effect. So we have the uh, again Lord Morrissey, the man who presided over uh, Titanic and the uh, Empress of Ireland inquiries. He's going to be the chief invest inquiry man in uh, Lusitania sinking. So, you want to tell about the uh, inquiry and the uh, world's reaction? Well, by the inquiry, the parts I read, it didn't paint the Hamilton in a good light. It seemed like after the sinking, they went, they moved heaven and earth to try like suppress the fact that there were there was contraband cargo munitions on board the ship and tried to mostly blame Turner. I thought it was interesting from Preston's book and the inquiry that they tried to get witnesses to say that there were two torpedoes, yeah, on both explosions rather than one. So, I'm not going to let the admiralty for the sinking, but, like, they played the blame game and... Tried to cover their ass. Pretty much, because the admiralty screwed up. Like, it happened on their watch. And they they, they they were throwing cats and Turner under the bus, too. Like, what I read, too, was uh, they said, like, you try to paint with, like, an incompetent, like, idiot. Like, you didn't take the threat seriously. Like, why did you spend, like, 40 minutes on this stuff of the course? And like, part of me agrees with that. Also, part of me is like, well, you know... You, you guys are giving, like, haphazard instructions. Like, you guys know, like, there was a lot of, uh, I don't know what's going on here. Like, we, the, 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 the people in charge of making sure the incidents don't happen, I don't think we're paying as much attention as they should have. Uh, again, like, I don't want to try to, like, defend Winston that much, but uh, this is also during the Gallipoli campaign in the Dardanelles, the Dardanelles Straits up in the Aegean Sea into Turkey, into uh, the capital of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Constantinople, Istanbul, they call it Constantinople, you go back and forth. Uh, yeah, I think his attention was focused a lot on that, so I, I think you're right that uh, the MOC basically neglected the uh, Lusitania to death and all the other liners that uh, were traveling at the time. Truly, I thought like she's fastened to, to avoid the torpedoes, the U-boats. Yeah, but uh, as, as pub, public outrage gets like becomes worldwide, the uh, Germans also backpedal a little bit. Like, initially, Schwieger was treated as a hero. Then when he got back to port, he was treated as a as a incompetent. Like, the Admiralty tried to throw him under the bus, too. Like, why'd you sink it? And they're like, well, you didn't tell me not to... Like, what I read, it was like, 
I think that they're trying to blame him, like, why'd you take Lusitania? And he's like, well, you didn't tell me not to sink it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was interesting. I think the War Diary in the U-20 got, um, got altered or doctored. It did. A lot of, uh, like, I think crew members who served on the U-20 at the time, they wrote later, like, oh, you know, Schreeder was like, oh, I can't find another torpedo into the crowd to sink the ship. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that they didn't actually feel that way when they sank the ship. I think a lot of that came after, and they had, like, second thoughts, and, like, oh, maybe this wasn't a good idea. It, to, what to what me, makes you say that? What kind of evidence? Well, you said, like, the war diary was doctored, and I yeah, think a yeah. lot of... I, th- I think, like, any time you watch, like, a Discovery... Epi- like, a Discovery, uh... A Discovery... Like, Discovery Channel, or, like, Smithsonian, like, they did a special in Lusitania. A lot of, like... These like docudramas that paint, like show like the uh, the like the the crew in the U boat at the time, and you know you see like the U boat crew like oh my god we just sank a ship full of innocent civilians. I mean I'm sure some of the some of the crew felt that way. Just a lot of those, that testimony later came like a much later after the sink and after like the public uh, outrage outrage. So for me personally, I, I can't tell if they're really thinking that at the time versus like they had like like remorse or like second thoughts. Like a month or so after, it's you told me like memory can be memory can be fickle. It can be. Also, even though like the British did have a play in the part on the sinking, ultimately the U boat crew and the commander did make the decision to sink the, the fire torpedo at the ship. Yeah, and we probably got pissed off a lot of people with that with that opinion. Well, that was not you know he could have not fired at the at the ship. You also told me like there aren't many that, that many four stackers at, at the time. Um, most of the uh, there's only a few big sh- ships big enough that had four smokestacks, four funnels. They were all owned by the, by, uh, by the Brit- British shipping company, so they were all passenger liners, so they would have had to have known that. It, they, they, it couldn't have been like a kid's mistaken identity. Like, there's, there's not many ships that have, like, four funnels or that big. I mean... Or the uh, idea of contraband and the munitions. Did that make your legal war target or not? Yeah, we can go back and forth on this. Personally... <sighs> Personally, I don't think so because technically the the, the small arms didn't violate the uh, U.S. customs. I mean, there was no, there was like no, like I, I read a lot of like arguments online and, and can, like Facebook and Twitter. There were ideas go to die. Personally, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, like there's some good comments, some good discussion, but Every, a lot of social media comments. It's full of hate. Everyone's a, everyone's a fucking expert. Everyone everyone hates everybody else. Everyone gets freaked out when their opinion like gets challenged, and instead of like taking additional information into effect, they start. I call it like seize mentality. Like they they hunger down. <laughs> the so long grenades. Yeah, I mean, I think both of us have had have had you know problems with that too. Like we've kind of caught into that a little bit. A little bit, but yeah. If you read the Lusitania, you'll see the comments like the British. You know they murdered those civilians or the evil Germans. Honestly, I think the British had a part, like in the Admiralty, putting the cargo on board the ship. But ultimately, like the U-boat crew, the commander, it was his decision to submerge and take a shot at the at the, at the Lusitania. Yeah, that that's that, that was the problem, and it became a big incident and. I don't want to say that it was the... I can't say it's the cause of America going to war because I've I seen a lot of... I've I seen a lot of new... The like, conspiracies that Churchill deliberately put the ship in harm's way to bring America into the war. Yeah, I mean, the best you can come out with this, I think you mentioned either to a, a right editor or uh, someone in the Admiralty, like... Oh, like, if a ship gets sunk with American flag, it's good. That would get them on our side. Yeah, but 
to me, there's no, there's not enough, like, all this is circumstance. There's not enough speculatory evidence, not enough evidence to say that uh, Churchill deliberately wanted that ship to get sunk. I love Winston. He's got his flaws. I don't think this is one of them. I think at that time, he was, he was too busy with the Darnell's campaign to think uh, Fisher, without another yeah. breakdown at the time. Jackie Fisher, he's like one of the big top, top dogs in the Le- uh, Leading Admiral in the Admiralty, yeah. I think it's a nervous breakdown. There was this one guy like Reginald Hall. He may have been, um, he may have like had motive to sink the ship because, I don't know. D- Diana Preston made a, a good case for it in her book, but even she's, what I read, she said that uh, it's all circumstantial. It's like, all speculatory, yeah. They'll never stand up in court. Yeah. Is there additional documents? The Admiralty's withholding? It's been over 100 years. Maybe some of the wireless transcripts to Lusitania. Yeah. I do know, I do believe that they, they did get a report saying, hey, there is going to, there is, people have been saying there's a U-boat operating off the coast of Ireland, be careful, take the precaution. And you don't think that word got to Lusitania? I could have sworn it did, because I think it was mentioned in the, the Smithsonian Channel, so I think they had some idea. I just don't think they, I, I think it was like, all right, like, there's a chance, but it's not a big chance. And the ship's so fast, it'll avoid it. Yeah. I mean, in most cases, I, th- I think like nine, like ninety nine out of a hundred times the women right is just that one time that they were that they were wrong. All the facts worked against them. Yeah, uh, I would not say that the Lusitania is the cause of America going to war because if you look at the the day that happened versus when America goes to war, it's over. It's almost two years. Now there is outcry about the unrestricted submarine warfare. Yeah, the Germans do stop that practice because you know. A lot of other nations are getting pissed off. Nations not at war with them at the time. It's bad press. It's bad press. But as the war goes on, especially in 1917, where even though like Russia's about to get knocked out of the war, the Germans, they're getting blockaded. They're starving. Like the turn of winters. Like the army's lean. Like they need a way to break the deadlock. Yeah. So they said, "All right, we're gonna go." Like one of the ways we're gonna go back to unrestricted submarine warfare. It is a gamble because mm-hmm. there's a good chance like more American lives will be lost. It might mm-hmm. bring America into the war. But they gamble thinking they can knock out the English before that happens. And they lost the gamble. They lost the gamble. I mean, that's not the only reason. They also had the Zimmerman telegram. And uh, what I read, it seems like the German diplomacy wasn't really diplomacy. It was more like bullying. Whereas the British, you know, they are kind of bullies. Like, they're statesmen. They, they, they play the political game a lot better. Yes, they did. They're more diplomatic. The more, um, you know, give and take. The more, uh, to, at least to, to, to the United States. They're more like, uh, you know, buddy-buddy. Like, we don't want to piss you guys off, but we want your support, too. That that that's my personal opinion on it. I think they they played the game with diplomacy. They've had way more years of generations of experience. The uh, German Second Reich, this the, the Kaiser under Kaiser Wilhelm. This empire has only been a, like technically around since uh, the eighteen seventies. It, it, in terms of like the British Empire, it's fairly uh, fairly new. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we can go back and forth on how much power the Kaiser really had, but his. Uh, it sounds like the military was kind of calling the shots towards the end. Uh, they did. They, they, they took more control over the uh, over the government, which that's that for you. That's a that, to you. That's a big reason why you don't want the military to have total control. Yeah, pretty much. The more I read about what happened in World War One with the German military, like they made decisions that really hurt them in the long run. Yeah, for some short term gains. But uh, that was the sinking of the Lusitania, and I will post some links in more information on it. Uh, so you have any other questions we should you think that people want, would like to know, our viewers? Not particular. I think we hit everything. What do you think? Uh, I think we did too. I, there's a little bit, like, the aftermath. Uh, Turner, Captain Turner, I believe, he might have taken command of another smaller ship later in the war. It also gets sunk, but then after that he's like, not really... Uh, he's done? Don't he's done, see. yeah. I mean... 
you know, like even if it's not, you're not, not a fault. If you lose a ship on your watch, then no one's going to trust you again. I believe his son dies in the Second World War, though. His ship gets torpedoed by a U-boat. I only know a few of the famous people off uh, off Lusitania. Alfred Vanderbilt, his body was never found, so he was lost to the sea. Uh, the first cl- first officer, uh, Piper, I think Alex Piper, I believe his first name was Alex. He survives the sinking, but he gets sunk later on the um, Arabic, Armist Arabic. While we have time, do you want to talk about the second explosion, the theories behind it, and what do you think is the bullying cause? Yeah, we should talk about that because that that been a, that should be a big controversy. So, as we, as Austin said, the uh, British Admiralty was pressing the people saying saying that it was like two or three torpedoes that sunk the, that sunk the Lusitania. For the Germans, especially, I think when like word finally filtered out that she may have been carrying munitions or like they speculation to carry munitions, they said no. We fired one torpedo, but your ship was illegally carrying arms and munitions. Diana Preston, uh, she to me was like one of the leading experts on Lusitania sinking in like the last ten or fifteen years. At least one of the more modern ones. She argued against the munitions. I think like Ballard, Bob Ballard, the, the he, man who found the Titanic. He surveyed the wreck and said, "No, like in the Fort Carteret where the munitions were, like there was no evidence of uh, explosion." Yeah, and like the where the ship got where the ship was torpedoed, it was well after the uh, the cargo the, the cargo holds. There's any like a boiler explosion, a coal dust. I think the one she mentioned was most likely. I think Turner mentioned it was like a steam line explosion. Yeah, there's like the, the the pipelines that connect the steam to power the ship. Then like once the second explosion happened, like the power got knocked out. So Turner mentioned steam lines. I think he, he, that was his like best best guess. Yeah, then uh, either a steam explosion, it could have been a boiler explosion, but I know I, I have heard back and forth over the years growing up about you know it couldn't have been a cold dust explosion because cold dust doesn't ignite like that. It could have been a boiler explosion, but people are thinking it could have been a furnace explosion or steam pipe explosion. I think that I think Diana Preston has the best lead. It was most likely um, an issue with one of the steam with one of the steam pow- part of the steam system. Uh, I mean. At the end of the day, though, the Lusitania would have sank regardless if it was a second explosion. Uh, researching the ship, she was designed to be an auxiliary merchant cruiser, right? Like, in case uh, time of war. But uh, the way she was built up, what's called longi- longitudinal bulkheads, is a term that I'll throw around. Pretty much, like, bisects the ship from, like, from bow to stern. Bow to stern, like, bot- top to bottom. It's basically... It's a good defense if you're engaged in like gunfire with another ship, shell fire. Not so much with torpedoes. Yeah, because the the way that these bulkheads are designed is basically if like, even if like one part of the ship gets flooded, like the the water goes <laughs> rises up vertically because it's it's connected vertically, so it's gonna like tilt the ship. And there were a lot of portholes open at this time. Now, you know, passengers wanted to air out their cabins. You know, get ready for the disembarking. It was a beautiful day out, and you know, people like don't like stuffy air. And you know, I'm just, I think the crew also had some of the portholes open for that. So she would have sank regardless. It was a second explosion. She just like it went down faster. So even without another explosion, she would have been sunk. Ocean liars aren't meant to take torpedoes, aren't they? They're not. No, they're meant for comfort. They're meant for. They're not. They're not warships. They're not like you know, state of the art warships. They're meant for comfort and. And uh, comfort and, uh, you know, speed. Loose Lusitania. I mean, people, I think, people are still going to argue as, as long as we're, as long as, as long as this story stays afloat, people will still argue back and forth what's Sanctuary Lusitania. 
you'll argue that the British were at fault or argue the Germans were at fault. Personally, I, I think both sides were at fault, although I am leaning more towards uh, the Germans. The Germans, because they ultimately decided to fire the torpedo. Yeah. Also, if anyone's a, a critic, I'm a very big Anglophile, so I believe very strongly in U.S.-U.K. relations. <laughs> uh, yeah, good times, good times. <laughs> so, as for Schrieger, unfortunately, we'll never get his, his full story, because he died before the war ended. He took command of another U-boat, right? Yeah, the U-20 ran aground. I believe the Kine Tower is in, I think, a Dutch or a Danish... Um, Museum now. Dana also across the Jutland. Ah, uh, gotcha. But Schrieger takes him out another U-boat. He dies in 1917, I believe. His yeah. U-boat kind of runs into a minefield. He's, yeah. He's never seen again. So he's he's with his sub. I so, do I do believe though that if he had survived, the British wanted to charge him with war crimes. Yeah, but we'll never get we'll never get his full side of the story because he, he died during the war. Yeah. So like at best guess, we're kind of speculating like his motivations for sinking the ship. Uh. Personally, I think he saw a big opportunity to add tonnage to his crew. I mean, I don't want to. I'm not. I don't want to call this guy a psychopathic murderer because I don't. I don't know the man. I don't. I never met him. He's been dead for a long time. Just the way his actions described, like he was very. He was good at his job as a U-boat commander, like sinking ships and trying to strangle, strang, blockade, strangle him up. Strangle Great Britain, which I think was the big, which was the aim of the German Navy to, to strangle Britain. I just think that they were so so. I think my, my my theory is that they were so solely focused on like the one issue at hand to stop like stop the con like stop the, the ship. The, the military side, the military side that they forgot about the other like political aspects that you need to take into account. Like, is it really worth sinking a ocean liner? So this is why, like, if you watch like a lot of good good YouTubers, I'm gonna I'm gonna split up the YouTuber historians. There are good YouTube historians, and there are crappy YouTube historians. The good YouTube historians will take all aspects of like an event. You know, mil- like you you can't just focus on military history if you want to talk about like World War II. You got to focus on like the political, social, economic aspects of it all. Uh, bad YouTube historians will use uh, faulty evidence. But they won't claim it's faulty. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I got my own problem with, with these some of these guys. Like, y- y- obviously, like some of the stuff's fake. But if you call, if you refute that to them, they'll be like, "Oh no!" Like, you, it's only fake because they want you to think it's fake. Yes, always the mainstream, the man is putting them down. Yeah, the, the deep staters. They don't, they don't want you to know the real story. I seen I seen this happen before. Yeah, and it's very hard to argue with these people because no matter, no matter like what evidence you present them, they'll say, "Oh no, that your evidence is doctored. My evidence is right." It just comes down to he said, she said, or like, you know, you very rarely win a Facebook argument or a YouTube argument. Pretty much. And I think uh, people spend way too much time arguing about this stuff on Facebook, social media. <coughs> but uh, yeah, that's the story of Lusitania and uh, the Empress of Ireland. So thanks guys again for listening. Hopefully we, we covered enough that you guys get a good understanding of these two events. Uh, I will post some descriptions of resources you can use, but I'll use the two references that I used a lot when reading about Lusitania. So I'll start off with Diana Preston. Her book is called Lusitania, an Epic Tragedy. She wrote she wrote this in 2002. It's one of the more modern resources. Uh, pedigree information is not really forthcoming off the uh, covers, but... She has had a bunch of bestsellers in the last number of years. Uh, some of her other books include The Road to Culloden Moor, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the 1745 Rebellion, 
A First Rate Tragedy, Robert Falcon Scott and the Race of the South Pole, and The Boxer Rebellion, the dramatic story of China's war on foreigners that shook the world in the summer of 1900. And she does very good with her research. She does, I think, lines like the German and Almaty archives. She does a lot of uh, facts and figures. I found it very readable. Like, it, it might take you a while if you don't know Lusitania's story, but it's chock full of good information. The other book I can recommend is by uh, Eric Larson, his book titled Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of Lusitania. Uh, I'm sure a few people probably know who Eric Lawson is. He made, he wrote a bunch of other highly successful... His, I want to say, like, historical novels. But I don't want to call them novels, but they are they like historical narratives. Including uh, The Devil in the White City, which is about the serial killer H.H. Holmes. He had, like, a murder hotel in Chicago. Uh, during the World's Fair, right? Of a, was it... Yeah, like, 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. That's like, there's some, like, really good documentaries on YouTube. And the guy's, like, a complete psychopath. I could have sworn they tried to make a movie out of that with uh, Leo DiCaprio. It was a high body count, so it's probably Scorsese work. <laughs> uh, In the Garden of Beasts, which talks about the... is another book he wrote which talks about the uh, American ambassador family in Nazi Germany at the time. During the 1930s and 1934s. I still have to read that whole thing. It's, I liked what I read so far. He's very good with a narrative. It's nothing really groundbreaking. It's just, just a blow-by-blow account. This book came out, I believe, in 2015 or so, 2016. Let me see if I can find the... Uh... Eric Lawson. Yeah, 2015. I read this a few years ago. It's... It'll take you... It won't take you that long to read through it. It's good. It's not really gonna... Again, it's not gonna be anything groundbreaking, but if you want, like, a quick, like, read about Lusitania, definitely check Eric Lawson out, too. Now, for the Empress of Ireland, I used, mostly used two books, plus a couple of uh, documentaries I found off YouTube. The stuff on YouTube, there's a PBS documentary called uh, Lost Liners, titled of the Titanic, Lusitania, and the Empress of Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's got Bob Ballard. It's pretty good. There is another Canadian-based documentary that talks about the Empress herself and like the circumstances behind her sinking. Mm-hmm. Good detective work, including a lot, a lot of dies on the ship. For books... I've got this book called The Tragic Story of the Empress of Ireland by Logan Marshall. It's an okay work. Um, a lot of like, first-hand accounts, which I, I use and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. It's not the greatest. It talks about the Titanic sinking towards the end, and he uses a lot of the old mess, like the cowardly foreigners who hid themselves under women's clothing to escape the ship, and like a lot of the typical <laughs> uh, tropes, like the typical um, stereotypes that are played up. So... Taken with a grain of salt, but the stuff on the Empress is pretty good. I also used 14 Minutes, The Last Voyage of the Empress of Ireland by James Kroll. Now, James Kroll, this came in 1978. He is, or was, a Royal Navy quartermaster. Worked as a journalist, and then, by the time of writing the book, he was a public relations officer in London. So, it's a good book. It has a a pretty good narrative. It's a little dated, isn't it? It is. It's kind of like Walter Lord, a night to remember. So, if you can get a copy of this, it's a good narrative. There is more modern work on the Empress, just not too much. But if you do like a Google search, you'll find a few books. I'm sure if we went to Ramusk, you'd probably find a couple local historians who uh, could tell you like everything about the Empress. That'd be nice, but that's all I got. You got anything else? Um, nah, I don't think so. What do you, what, where do you want the uh, our next big podcast to be about? That depends if I'm in Vermont or I'm in Boston. Come June, July, I'll see what happens. Uh, if you cool, like 
as we get later into the year, like before the election, I would like to do a podcast on the election of 1860. Because uh, I, I got a feeling this election is going to be pretty tumultuous with uh, the, the COVID pandemic going on and uh, Biden and uh, Trump. I would like to do, I'd like to talk something about like another tumultuous election we had, which before, like before the Civil War, to get more into the politics. If you viewers have any uh, suggestions for us, what you'd like us to talk about, we can go from there. We can do another episode on a uh, ship sinking or like, Straight like famous shipwrecks like the Andrea Dory that we talked about, the uh, Mary Celeste, the ghost ship of uh, the Bermuda Triangle, not really Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, the Bermuda Triangle is kind of a uh, bullshit. I know, but it makes for a great it makes for a like, great drama. <laughs> Unfortunately, when it comes to the story, the facts die first for the story. Yeah, but if you guys have any uh, like suggestions for us, otherwise we'll um we might go through there unless you got some suggestions, Austin. Yeah, not at the moment. All right. Well, uh, again, guys, thanks for listening. Hope you guys are enjoying your Sunday, and uh, hope everything's going well for everybody. Thanks for watching. Bye for now. All right. Bye bye.